The following audio is recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. So open with me to 1 Timothy. We are at a finish line this morning. Don't sound excited about it. I'm so sad and yet so excited. We are at a finish line. Um, We've spent the majority of the year here, six chapters and um, 112 verses. Uh, And we've been here for 33 weeks, 33 sermons. And um, God has been so good through this this letter and we get to finish it today. It's been so timely. Um, And it's just reminded me again and again that God actually, he, he cares for his church. Um, he cares about what we believe. He cares about what we teach. Um, he cares about what we do. He cares about how we treat each other. He cares about who leads the church. He cares about us in the church, us as the church. He, he cares about Stone of Bible Church. And I've just been encouraged by this as we've walked through this, this letter. Um, we have gone through so much. And as we get to the final words... The closing remarks, I think they do really well to summarize some really important things for us in this letter. So we're going to look at the two final verses, the two final commands uh, for us in this letter. And so what I want to do, I'll read our our text for us, and then we can, we'll pray, and we'll get, we'll get started, all right? So we're going to be in verses 20 through 21 of 1 Timothy. And it says this, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. All right, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we, uh, we come to your word now as we do each Sunday morning, asking that you would speak, that you would guide us. Um, Lord, we come to your te- this, this word this morning in gratitude for all that you've done in this letter and the fact that we are now getting to close this book. We're, we're grateful for what you have done, but Lord, as we close it, give us open eyes, open ears to hear where you would lead in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, Let's start off just real quick with reminding ourselves of some context. Um, I I think this is important to get kind of a heart and a feel for what we see here. So Paul was the writer of this book, and he was a serial church planter. He just couldn't help himself. His mission in life was to go around starting churches. It's what what we see in the New Testament. He was this missionary who was really going from community to community. And as he went, he was planting gospel seeds and proclaiming the gospel in these communities. And when those seeds took root, what he did is he formed communities around the gospel. And he empowered the people there to live their lives for Jesus. He developed leaders in these communities around the gospel that was planted. The gospel was planted. Churches were being planted. Churches were being strengthened. 
This was Paul's heart. This was Paul's ministry. And um, multiple times throughout the New Testament, we get a sense of how much Paul truly loved the churches that by the grace of God, he was able to plant. And we see it all throughout how much he cared for them, how long, how much he longed to be back with them. He had to travel, he had to do his thing as a missionary, but he looked back fondly and wanted to be there, wanted to be with them. He cared for them. And um, the church of Ephesus was one of those churches. And it's actually the church that we have in view here in in the the book of 1 Timothy. Paul loved them. He wanted to be with them. He didn't want to leave them. That's why he was so persistent with who was going to be the leading um, group in this church when he was gone. It mattered so deeply for Paul because he cared so deeply for these churches. And there's an urgency you feel when you pick up Ephesians. There's an urgency that you feel when you pick up 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Paul was writing with so much love for the gospel, love for this church, and love for Timothy and the leaders of the church. And and after all that Paul has just written um, here to Timothy and 1 Timothy, today we get to his final words, his final two commands. And and I'm struck by just how endearing he, he finishes it. He says, Oh, Timothy... Oh, Timothy, hear my words. And then he gives the first command. He says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Um, Guard the deposit. Uh, This is a packed statement. So guard, same word for keep, protect, um, watch over, make sure it's safe, uninjured, unaltered, guard, guard, keep. It's that idea of protection. And and I want to say something really obvious that I probably don't need to say, but I'm going to anyway. To guard something means um, you know what it is that you are protecting and guarding. Um, Think of soccer, or if you don't like soccer, Grab hockey. I don't know what your thing is, but think of one of those and think of the goalie. The goalie's job is to keep the ball or to keep the puck from getting into the net, getting into the goal. Protect the net, right? Protect the net. Um, Even if you don't follow soccer or hockey, hopefully this analogy isn't lost on you. Um, Protect the net. Goalies aren't able to guard their goal if they have no idea where their goal is. That would be a fun sport to watch um, if they have no idea where it is, what it is, they're not going to be able to, and, and it sounds, it's a ridiculous example, and it sounds so obvious, but we need to start there. To guard something means you know what it is. You know what it is that you are guarding, so keep it, guard it, and, and guard what? Well, Paul says, guard the deposit. This is a banking term. Um, it's like going to a bank, although as I was thinking about this, not many of us do that anymore. It's like getting on your app um, and, and making a deposit, taking, you know, cash or depositing a check. What happens when you do that? What happens when you make a deposit? What happens is, one of the things, is that money changes hands. And it goes from your hands to the hands of the bank. And what you're doing is you're giving the responsibility to the bank as you deposit that money. Um, It's still your money, 
but you're giving them the responsibility to not change it. Don't you go changing it unless you increase it, but don't go changing it, right? Um, don't lose this. Don't lose this deposit. You're giving the bank the responsibility to hold it, protect it, and guard it. Our banks are even insured. Why? Because you want to know. When you make the deposit, it needs to be guarded fully in its entirety. It needs to be guarded. Well, in a very similar way, this is the picture Paul's giving us here in this text. Saying, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. And then he says, entrusted to you, which it's like, I hope you, you trust your bank when you deposit that it'll be there. If not, get a new bank, okay? Um, but we trust, I hope you have that trust. Well, it's like the trust you have in your bank as you make the deposit. Paul says, Timothy, you have been entrusted with the deposit, God has made the deposit. Timothy, guard it, protect it, and keep it. Um, you know what came to my mind? A thought that came to my mind when I was kind of working through this. I had this image come to my mind. It was one of these. Um, one of those armored security trucks. Um, if you haven't seen them before, they'll just roll up sometimes to like Starbucks or um, Target or somewhere, and uh, they'll roll up these armored trucks, and uh, people get out who are, I think they're supposed to be kind of serious, you know, focused, and um, they wear boots, cargo pants, and black polos most of the time. Um, this sounds creepy. It sounds like I really, ex no, I just, this is the image that comes to mind, all right? Um, but what they do is they go in, and they get the store's deposit, and most of the time, it is a crazy large sum of money, or one of those wouldn't be needed. Um, they get this deposit and, and their job is to guard it, secure it until they can pass it off to the bank. I thought of this image of this armored truck in my mind and um, we're a lot like that as the church. What I mean is we're given this entrusted with this deposit, and although it's not crazy large sums of money, um, the thing that we are given is worth far more. Just on a different, unquestionably greater level. And we're given this deposit, and just like the armored truck, your call is to guard it, your call is to protect it, your call is to keep it. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. This is the call. So I want to ask church, like, what is it? What is the deposit? And um, I'll cut right to it. It's the gospel. Our deposit is the truth of God's word. Our deposit is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, the one who came, lived the perfect life, the one who died for our sins, the one who rose on the third day, conquering death, hell, and the grave. Our deposit is salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, the forgiveness of sins, justification. It's the Holy Spirit who works in us, works on us, sanctifying us, convicting us, gifting us, empowering us, sealing us forever. It's the promise that Christ is coming again and one day everything will be made right. He will reign. 
This is our deposit. And we need to guard it. It's the deposit that Jude talks about in Jude 3 when, when he says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The deposit is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. I love the way a commentator says this. He says, the precept to Timothy here is to keep diligent and watchful guard over the faithful or the faith committed to his trust to preserve it unaltered and uncorrupt so as to, I love this, so as to hand it down to his successors exactly the same as he had received it. Going back to the armored truck, it's like we're picking up a deposit and we're working a shift in our black cargo pants. And our charge is for that deposit not to change. Unaltered. Uncorrupted. Guarding what has been given to us that it would not be lost, would not be changed. Not on our watch, right? That we would be able to pass it off to the next shift worker. That we would be able to pass it off to the next generation. Unaltered. Uncorrupted. You've been given the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the deposit that has been entrusted to you. So guard it, church, and keep it. Protect it. Um, I want to bring out a couple implications from this. And I'm going to do it on three different levels. Um, The first being implications for pastors and church leaders. Second, implications for, for you as members of the church. And then third, implications for us individuals in our homes. So I want to bring out three implications from this. And I want to start with pastors, church leaders, um, and I'm not going to spend much time here. Why? Because I'm not at a pastor's conference. And um, it feels like I'm talking a lot to myself, and it is. Um, But here's what I want to do. I want to bring out these implications, and as I walk through them, I'm walking through them a bit like commitments that we are making. These are the commitments that we want to make publicly here as leaders and pastors at Stone Oak Bible. Commitment number one, our competence is in the gospel alone. What this means is that we are unashamed that we only have one trick here, and it's the gospel. And it's not a trick, but we call ourselves a one-trick pony. We don't have anything else. Um, No amount of slick production, uh, no amount of programming or motivational speaking or moving worship moments is going to do it. The gospel and the gospel alone is our confidence. And what this means is that the gospel, as the word of God says, is the power of God unto salvation. That means that your friends, your family, people in your community, coworkers, they don't need a charismatic leader. They do not need a charismatic leader with a positive, encouraging message with friendly people and great programs and energetic music. None of those things are bad, but none of those things save you. Only the gospel saves. Only the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it's the gospel that we have been entrusted with. And our confidence is in the gospel. And the gospel alone. 
Number two, our commitment is our boast is the gospel alone. Um, Listen, as church leaders, we walk a really weird, fine line. And we need to walk it. Um, On the one hand, I really do love our church. I'm not just saying that. I really do love our church, and I really do believe in what God's doing here. Um, I want everyone to know about our church. I don't even mind wearing a t-shirt that has our church on it because I love it so much. But on the other hand, um, with all that love, with all that we're doing, oh, our boast can never be in our church. Uh, Can never be how awesome we think we are. Our boast is only in Jesus and Jesus alone. Our commitment as leaders is to boast in the glories of God. To boast in Christ and in Christ alone. His awesomeness over ours. Um, I was thinking about this and, and do you know what it, when, when people ask me, like, tell me about your church. Like, I get that a lot. And um, tell me, what, what, what are you guys about? Like, I get questions like that that are really difficult to answer like in line, getting a coffee, but it's what happens. And um, you know what always comes to my mind? And, and I haven't really figured out a real quick, you know, amazing way to say this yet. Um, but I never get into the new approaches and novel things that we're trying to do. Like I never, that never comes to my mind. All the exciting ways that we're doing things. No, um, What gets me excited is not what I think makes us different and special from all the others. The more I think about it, what gets me most excited is the things that we share in common. With every faithful gospel-centered church who has ever gone before us and everyone who will come after us. That is what I'm proud about. Now, how to say that in line at a call, uh, you can't, but it's like I get most excited when I think about how I desire us to be a faithful link in a long chain. That's right. That's right. Why? Because our boast is in the gospel and the gospel alone. I need to move. Commitment number three, our future is the gospel alone. This connects with this. I, I love our church and I believe again in what God is doing in our church, but my hope is not for our ministry to last forever. Some of you are like, oh, can you say that here? Um, yes, my hope is that the gospel will go on and on and on and on and on and forever. That's my future. That's my hope. Um, here's what I mean. I want Stone Oak Bible Church to be a healthy church until the day Jesus returns. I want this church to far and long, 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 long outlive me. That's my prayer. But if the Lord tarries, and um, I got to tell you, my hope is not just in the future of our church specifically. My hope, our hope is in the gospel that goes on forever. Think about it like this. This letter written to Timothy pastoring in Ephesus, church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus that we see represented in this letter, listen, it's not around today like it was back then, is it? And yet the gospel is. Our hope, our future is not in any 
organization, our hope and our future is in the gospel as it is represented in the people of God, that will endure. We contend. This is why we contend. This is why we protect. This is why we guard. It is our hope to be a faithful link for as long as God has us here, to be a faithful link, a faithful gospel steward in this chain until Jesus comes or calls us home. Will we be a faithful link? Our mission, this is our mission as pastors, as church leaders here, to our commitment Guard, protect the gospel so that we can be a faithful link in this chain. Our confidence, boast, and future is in the gospel and the gospel alone. Now, let's move to the second implication. What do we do with this as members of the body? As the church, what do we do with this? How do we guard what's entrusted to us? First, this sounds a little bit like what I already talked about. We know the gospel like a goalie knows his goal. We know the gospel. We've used this example before in Timothy. Um, but we talked about how people, do you remember, how people are trained to spot counter, counterfeit bills. We've talked about this. You don't get them in a room and just start studying all the possible counterfeits. That's crazy and overwhelming and never going to be possible. But what you do is you get them in the room and you have them study the original so they know the real thing so well that they can spot any variation, any alteration. That's what we must do. We must know the gospel. If you're going to guard it, you need to know it. We need to proclaim it to ourselves, remember it daily. We need to have daily and weekly gospel rhythms together that remind us of this. This church service every Sunday at 1030 is one of those regular weekly gospel rhythms that reminds us of these things. What are you doing? Do you have others? Do you have other rhythms that remind you of the gospel, that you know the gospel? Why? Because you are prone to wonder. Do you have ways to remember it regularly, to recount it regularly so that you can know it fully? Know the gospel. Second, this is not rocket science. Proclaim it. This means that you share the gospel with each other applying the gospel to each other's lives. Listen, I think there's a misconception here that the gospel of the good news of Jesus is, is only for those who are lost, which it is, blind, deaf, dead, spiritually. Those, that's who needs to hear the gospel. But once you hear it, then you can go deeper, right? That is garbage. What I mean by that is the gospel is for those who are found just as much as for those who are lost, the gospel is for those who can see, who can hear, who are alive in Jesus. We need to proclaim it and we need to be prayerful and bold and patient and continually correct ourselves and others as we go astray. This is how we guard it. We raise our kids in the gospel. I love the army of kids we have that are so sweaty all the time. I love it. I love it. Raise your kids in the gospel. This is why we serve in kids, by the way. We serve in kids so that we can speak into the next generation. We know the gospel, remember it, proclaim it. Let's talk about those kids. Um, it's not just about what we're doing here in the church, is it? 
It's not just about what we're, when we're serving or in our groups or community groups. It starts with us and it starts in our homes. And so the third implication I want to give here is for our homes. How do we do this in our homes? Listen, we do this by talking about the gospel daily. I want to take some mystery away from this. Not mystery in the gospel. That is wonderful mystery. But no, listen, we need to talk about the gospel more often in our homes. I want to ask you a question, parents. How many of you know every answer? How many of you know everything there is to know about life and about the Bible and about the gospel? How many of you, parents, you got it? You ready? Me neither. And so hear me, you need to hear this. You need to know this. You do not need to know all the answers to disciple your kids Your kids need to see that Jesus is real in your life and that you love him and you follow him. They need to see your faith in the gospel on on display, not just on Sundays, but in your daily life. That is what your kids need to see. Talk about the gospel more often. I want to go back to what the commentator said. If you, if you look at that final line here, you know, preserve it unaltered, uncorrupted, right? But then it says, so as to hand it down to his successors exactly the same as he had received it. That does not happen at church alone. If we're gonna faithfully hand this down as a faithful link in the chain from one generation to the next, it's gonna take our homes We remember, we proclaim, we protect the gospel in here, yes, and we will not stop. I told you our commitment. But it starts in our homes. I just want to point something out here. Um, Many of you did not grow up in a Christian home. And I praise God for the way he often grips our hearts despite of our upbringings. It is one of God's glorious gifts. Praise God for you who, if you were to come up here and share your testimony, you came to faith later in life. Praise God for his glory that's on display in your life. Um, Here's the thing. As a follower of Jesus, you are called. There's no getting around it. You are called in whatever way that God places in front of you to be a faithful link in a chain so that the next generation will know the gospel because of you. Giving, for those of you who didn't grow up in a Christian home, it's time for you to give them what you didn't get. Give them what you did not get. For those of you who did grow up in a Christian home, where you did hear the gospel, you did talk about the gospel, um, your parents weren't perfect, I know. But where you grew up in a home where the gospel was centered, listen, you are blessed. That is an incredible blessing. And I got to just tell you, side note here, Thanksgiving's coming up. And it's a time to be, express our gratitude to God and to others. There is no better thing. So if that's you, I've given you now homework. Express your gratitude for that. Because that is an incredible gift of God. But whatever Whoever you are, whatever your upbringing, your calling is to guard 
the deposit entrusted to you. Well, actually, that is uh, half the calling. We got one more. Because now Paul's going to continue, not only guard, but listen, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. The second command, first is guard, second is avoid. Avoid. Avoid means turn away. Turn away, right? Um, Picture driving your car and there's a gigantic pothole in front of you. Turn away. Just turn away. This is the command. Avoid. Turn away. Swerve. What? What are we to avoid? What's the pothole? Irreverent babble, contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, what is that? Um, This word irreverent, you might not use that much. A good kind of substitute word here is godless. Um, It's this idea of godless chatter or babble or rambling about God. It's uh, the kind of stuff that sounds really good and smart, yet it's complete and total nonsense. Um, We've seen it already in this letter. If you look back, I'm not going to do this for time, but in chapter one, you see Paul talks about pointless myths and genealogies and speculations. Chapter one, verse three. You see uh, chapter one, verse six. You see certain persons, he said, swerving, same word, swerving from these have wandered off into vain discussion and desiring to be teachers of the law. This is verse seven. Without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, they're, they're really confident about their nonsense. This is a bunch of truthless claims about truth. Uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul even says that this kind of nonsense leads to a shipwreck of the faith. That's how serious it is. We saw in, verse, in chapter 4, he talks about it multiple times. Again, the silly myths. The, hey, you can't eat that, but you can eat that. Like, you see all that stuff um, in chapter 4? I want to give one more um, quote here from a commentator. He says this. I love this. The knowledge of the heretics included empty discussions about fables, genealogies, asceticism. Paul vowed that what the heretics espoused was knowledge, but he named it false knowledge. In other words, there is such a commodity as genuine knowledge, but these guys didn't have it. That's so kind. It's a kind way to say that. Um, They have this faux knowledge, this fake, faux, false knowledge. And what does Paul call Timothy to do? Turn away. Turn away from it. The more I thought about this, the more that is weird to me. Um, It's really interesting. The command, it's so weird that it got me kind of digging. I spent most of my time digging in this. Um, Because it's weird. If you think about it, Timothy wasn't even supposed to waste his time with this, this, these refuting these crazy ideas. He's just supposed to ignore them. Like to go back to the car analogy, he's driving around, sees a gigantic pothole. He's supposed to swerve around it. Just get away. He's not supposed to stop the car, patch it up. He's just supposed to turn and, and go. Like, Okay, 
if our call is to proclaim and guard the gospel, my question when I first got to this is why wouldn't Paul call Timothy to engage? Right? To engage these false teachers with the gospel. Why would Paul be calling him here to avoid? Well, I believe the next statement holds the key to that. The next statement in our verse says, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Swerved from the faith, meaning that there were those who were in the church, but who have swerved away from the faith. Don't miss the play on words. There's no coincidence in this. The command we're given is to swerve, to avoid, right? Um, By steering away from what is false, here what they're doing is the exact opposite, They're swerving away from the gospel and swerving into silly myths. Same thing, flip it, opposite. And so what is this? What's going on? What are we called to avoid? What this means is that there were people in the church who were once a part of the fellowship who were now given over to a false doctrine, false gospel, and they no longer stand on or profess the true gospel. They've left the faith. This is important because these aren't believers who are genuinely wrestling with questions and doubts and trying to, brothers and sisters, trying to work through questions in in the gospel. No, that's not what this is. These are people who had left the faith, who have given themselves to another gospel, a false gospel, and Paul says here to Timothy, listen, do not debate, do not argue, Don't engage, proclaim the gospel, protect the gospel, and let them go. Turn away. Now at this point, another text popped into my mind. And uh, I realized this wasn't the first time I had read that. This wasn't the first time Paul told someone to do that. And and I was thinking about this, and I'll put it up here so you don't have to turn. But in, in Titus 3, we see the exact same thing. He says to Titus, avoid it. Avoid those foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable and worthless. And as for that person who stirs it up after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he's self-condemned. That's the same message. Said differently, same message. After doing what you can do to proclaim the gospel, after warning and pointing out the danger, there comes a time when you must say, okay, I'm letting you go. Actually, to be more clear, there comes a time when we, as the church, when we must say, okay, we are letting you go. Not because we do not love them, not because we stop praying for them, but because engaging them is unprofitable, fruitless, when all they want to do is fight and mislead. Um, I couldn't help but think, I think the most obvious example of this is Facebook arguments. (laughs) My goodness. Or anywhere online that has a comment section. Um, Let's just pretend you see something, you're like, oh, that's wrong. That's crazy. I need to... That's off, that's ridiculous. And so you sit down and you take the time, you pray over, you craft a strongly worded response. One that is clear. Truth and grace bring the heat. Unbridled truth, send. 
<laughs> Problem solved, right? Listen, for any of you who have ever been online, you know that problem's not solved. You know it's not over. Why? Because time and time again, no one's mind gets changed. What happens is shots get fired back. There's return fire. Arguments, they go deeper and deeper and nastier and nastier. They get more and more pointless and heels get dug deeper and deeper in. I don't want to ask if you've been there, but you probably have. This is a lot of what Paul is getting at here. In this text, there will be times in the life of our church when people will come into our lives and who will just go off the edge. And um, believing and debating and teaching this little thing over this and they'll get into the weeds and they'll sound really smart, but it's nonsense, remember? People who have completely neglected, walked away from the gospel, following after one of the many modern fads that we have to choose from in our day and age. And although we may feel the call to engage, there comes a time, and sadly, I know many of you have been there and maybe are there right now with someone in your life. There comes a time when in great sadness and great prayer, we must let them go. Going back to our Titus, avoid those foolish controversies. Genealogies, dissensions, quarrels, they're unprofitable, worthless. And as for that person... After warning him, have nothing more to do. Knowing he's warped, sinful, he's self-condemned. Or, let's go what Paul says here in our text to Timothy. Avoid the irreverent, irreverent, godless, babbling, and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The call is to avoid. Avoid the babbling. Avoid the engaging, the quarrels. Let them go. I uh, just thought of... Elsa, when I said that, I apologize. I'm back. Um, I want to say something, though, because I want to be careful about one thing with this. Um, this does not mean that we stop caring for them. And it does not mean that we stop praying for them. What this means is that we just stop treating them as a part of the church. And we begin to treat them as we would the lost world around us. That might sound harsh, but it's not, because here's what I mean when I say that. What do you do when one of your lost neighbors is believing something crazy? Well, hopefully you don't just go over there and blazonly rebuke them. Hopefully you pray for them. Not just that they would see the issue the way you see it. My hope, my prayer, is that we would pray for them that they would first see the gospel that their hearts would be gripped by Jesus, that they would repent of their sin and follow Christ, that we would pray first and foremost for restoration, that one day they will come to the, and stand on the truth of the gospel and be part of the church again. Then we can talk about that, that issue. This is what we need to do with these individuals. For many of us, you may have faces, names that come to your mind. This is really hard. And oh, how I wish we could just go... And now they see it. Now they get it. Now they see the beauty and wonder of Christ. And I wish we could just, and they wake up. I wish we could do that. More than anything, I wish I had that power. But I don't and you don't. Salvation's God's work, not ours. So what do we do with this? We, what do we do when we have to let them go? What do we do? Well, we continue to proclaim the gospel and stand on it. 
we pray and we pray and we pray without ceasing and we trust our sovereign God that he is sovereign over all of the things that are out of our control, including those that are heavy on our hearts. That's what we do. That's all we can do. And so as we look at this, um, how incredible is this clarity here for Paul to us? He says, brothers, sisters, guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. Be the faithful link in the chain. Unaltered, unchanged, pass it down to the next link, knowing it's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation. And then individually, let us, and collectively, let us guard what has been entrusted to us, the deposit we have received. And as we do that, let us avoid all those potholes that would seek to derail us, sidetrack us, throw out our alignment, suck us into meaningless arguments and pulling us away to a different gospel. Let us guard the deposit and avoid the potholes. Guard the deposit, avoid the potholes. And then Paul finishes with this. Final words, he says, grace be with you. Um, this is his closing, and I gotta be honest, it's both odd and significant. It's odd first in a, in a small way because it's small, it's short. This is way shorter than most of Paul's closing remarks. You can compare it, I think, it compares closest to 2 Corinthians, what he says in 2 Corinthians when he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, that's more norm. He gets even longer than that. But that's more norm. And here we just got, grace be with you. Um, so that's odd. But it's odd in another way that I want to pull out here. And I, and I think this one is actually really significant. Uh, grace be with you. Okay, that last you. That last you, you would assume, talking to Timothy, written to Timothy. Timothy's a single dude. You would assume that would be singular. Right? I mean, it's not. It's plural. It's a plural you. In English, we have you, and it means you, and it means you. In Koine Greek, there's, there's a difference between the singular and the plural, so we know. This is plural. In Texas, we get this. We, we, you know this. <laughs> Let me throw up the Texas translation here. Grace be with y'all. <laughs> I want you to know that it's important. Like, Texas gets this one right. Grace be to y'all. Why is that important? Why is that odd? Well, it shows that Timothy, yes, this was, for, this was for Timothy. Paul was writing to Timothy. But it shows that his intent was for y'all. For the church. The intent was for this to be read. To more than just Timmy. To the church. Grace be to y'all. Like, this is big. I mean, this is significant. It focuses us as a people on grace, the grace of God. And I, I want to finish our letter. I want to finish our morning with this. What is grace? We can easily pass by this word because we see it all the time. And we can easily forget just how significant our ending is here. Grace is two things in scripture. Number one, grace is the undeserved favor of God. Unmerited, undeserved, you didn't do it, it was done on your behalf. Grace. Um, you're a sinner, say by grace, justification, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, redemption, grace, 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 grace. 
I'm gonna put up some scriptures. Don't turn with me here because I'm going fast, okay? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Undeserved favor. Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Undeserved favor. Romans 11, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor of God. But scripture also talks about grace in one other way. Not only the undeserved favor of God, but also God's power in our lives for living out our lives for him. God's power. Um, meaning, when you think of sanctification, walking in the faith, walking with Jesus, listen, all by grace. Every one of them. You don't just get saved by grace, you're kept by grace. I'm going to give you three verses, because three and three, you got to keep them equal, okay? Second Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God's power in your life. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, oh, I love this, but my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in, in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, the power of God in our lives. That's God's grace. One more, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is within me. It's the power of God. Grace is, is salvation and life. It's, it's all grace. I, I want to give you a definition here that'll wrap this up. Uh, John Piper puts it like this beautifully. He says, God's grace is both the inclination of the divine heart to treat us better than we deserve and is the extension of that inclination in practical help. That's just good. Like, that's just so powerful. Two things. It is God treating you better than you deserve, and it is God helping you in this life. That is grace. We do nothing apart from the grace of God. You are saved by grace. You are kept by grace. You walk by grace. It is grace, 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 okay? The reason I think it's important that we finish our time in 1 Timothy with this, the reason Paul finishes, is listen, the commands given in this letter are massive, um, let's just look today. Guard the deposit. That's a huge command. Hugely important. Avoid quarrels that would take you away from the gospel. Huge command. Um, and yet, here's the thing. You are given these commands, and it is by the grace of God and the grace of God alone, the power of God, that we can actually walk in them. You can't do this on your own. God has given you the power to do what he has commanded you to do in his word. You are not left alone. We go in grace, the favor and the power of God. Grace be with you. And so brothers, sisters, guard the deposit. Avoid those potholes. 
And as you do, grace be with you. Grace, unmerited favor, and grace, unparalleled power. Grace be with you. This morning, I want to I finish our time as we literally do that with First Timothy. Uh, I want to finish our time singing in response about this grace that we have received. And so I want to ask you, if you could, would you join me? Would you stand with me? And let's respond by singing about this grace.